Well, I thought along what I would also do is for those so – many people are obviously going to know who you are. They might not know who I am. And just a brief introduction that really I came about the the whole process of familiarity with yourself as a teacher and, and artist through Luminous Landscape, of, uh, I guess, four or five years ago, and then formally began studying with you through a Navajo land workshop about two and a half years ago. I've been on four field workshops, one field uh, combination classroom lecture workshop, and one-on-one uh, -on -one consulting. And so that's kind of how I came about to know Alan and have valued our, his teaching greatly over the last few years, and I look forward to further learnings. And uh, I just wanted to give folks an idea as to who I am and kind of why I'm doing it. Why I'm doing it is I always... I think Alon writes a lot about art and photography and uh, some camera, you know, some equipment reviews, but mostly on on broader topics. And I, what I'm, while I'm also impressed with his artwork, I'm equally impressed with the volume of teaching that he does and writing that he does, and uh, through workshops. I think we mentioned the other day that I counted up that Alon in just a really a fairly short span of time here in the last three to four or five years has uh, numerous essays. A uh, book of essays is now coming out, uh, Mastering Landscape Photography. He also has other writings on the website, Thoughts and Photographs, Reflections on Photography and Art, another section of writing, uh, diaries including equipment reviews, CDs with additional writings on how to, the process of photography, DVDs with video content, actually not only teaches photography and the art of photography, but also marketing workshops to students. And what is even, uh, I think, doubly nice is the gallery of students' work that he features on his website, which is a very nice feature. And, uh, you know, along we, we were kind of getting into a discussion the other day about why you ventured into teaching, especially to this extent. I don't know of any one individual who offers this much curriculum uh, in this photographic genre. Yeah, that's a good good point. I hadn't thought of it. I, I always assumed that, you know, people are doing way more than I am. <laughs> that I, you might, you, you're probably right. I, I really don't know. I'm, um, what I'm trying to do is uh, share what I know. And I think part of the reason is because when I was growing up, in France, I was trying to learn certain subjects. Uh, one of them was photography, but uh, there was uh, there was other subjects. One of them w was leather work or woodworking, and all these trades were very close, uh, especially leather work, uh, where you you just couldn't get access to the knowledge unless you joined the school and became an apprentice and basically dedicated your life to doing to doing that. Then the doors would open a little bit and and you'd learn the trade. And, and that frustrated me to no end because I, at the same time that these trades were very closed, they were also disappearing. I mean, how many labor workers are left in the world today that make a living making handbags and briefcases and, and all of that? You know, a handful. I mean, there is Hermes in France. You have mm -hmm. to be to some extent. You know, we are learning, we are talking maybe a few thousand people at the very most, you know, in, in Western world countries, okay, uh, in France and, and Europe and the U.S. And yet, these trades are basically saying, well, sorry, you know, but 
we don't have any any intent on teaching anyone how to do this because these are trade secrets, and and the secrets are dying. So I, I saw a sort of conflict between their attitude and the fact that they were projecting something which is going to disappear. There's not going to be a recorded trace of it. And I experienced the same when I went into studying photography, where if you went to a professional photographer and you asked questions, they were, you would get very lucid answers. Uh, especially when it came to landscape photography, uh, you know, which was my interest, but I would think about any sort of photography. It took me forever to realize that a professional landscape photographer carried a compass in their backpack. Um, and probably had astronomical software to know when the sun would rise and where and when the moon would rise and where. And when I figured that out, and I figured that out on my own just based on seeing photographs by specific photographers that couldn't be the result of, of good luck. I mean, you had to be there on that one day. And uh, I started thinking, wow, you know, I mean, that really helps me. I mean, now I'm carrying a compass. I have predicted where the moon is going to rise, at what time, the azimuth, and the same with the sunset. And, and I can plan to be there on that one day as opposed to just hoping for the best, you know. Um, and, and I realized that, you know, there was all this knowledge. I mean, this is just one little aspect of it that just wasn't available because, you know, it could be that nobody thought of sharing it. It could be because they did not want to share it. It could be because people did not ask. I mean, I really don't know. But definitely it wasn't available. And it was holding back people from learning the art of photography. And at the same time as this was happening, the, the same thing was happening as in labor work to, to a lesser extent, which is, you know, these people die and the knowledge dies with them, right? Um, so, you, so you reach this absurd situation where, you know, instead of predicting what we might think of as their business advantage, they are really keeping a secret and then dying with it, you know? Um, so this is one of the things I'm trying to prevent. I, I, you know, my goal is to share all my knowledge, uh, it, and it takes time. It takes a lot of time because you can't just say, well, here it is, because knowledge isn't exactly like artwork. You can't just give it to somebody. You have to explain it. Uh, so you have to, you have to craft uh, tutorials. You have to develop courses. It, it takes a lot of time. And I think that's what you've done. I, I think w when even if someone would ask me to explain what it is I, I do, it can be frustrating because mm -hmm. you don't know where to start. And right. it, it's kind of a, the, both the student and the instructor. The student probably understands that there's a lot more there that they don't know, but maybe they think it can be answered within 10 minutes. While the the teacher has this body of knowledge and, and they're, open to sharing it, but don't know the language or don't know the structure to present it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what yeah, you've no. done. You, you're helping yeah, create structure. You're helping create language right. to communicate. Yeah, you have to have structure. I mean, you can't just, you know, it, knowledge is unlike art. With art, you can walk into a museum, there is a beautiful painting on the wall, and you can just observe it and, you know, love it or not love it. But you don't really have to explain how it was made in order to enjoy it. It's you know, it's like walking into a beautiful building or a beautiful house. You don't have to understand how it was built. It feels good. You know, it's beautiful. It's pleasurable. But when it comes to knowledge, you know, the person that wants to build this house or create this artwork from scratch has to have all of that knowledge, and that takes years. Uh, so enjoyment can be extremely fast. It's a split second. 
but creating the work that's creating the enjoyment is a lifetime of work. And the, the most common mistake that I, that I see people make is to assume that the task is a lot easier than it really is. Uh, you know, it's called by many, and I think the first person to call it that may have been Dale Carnegie, but I definitely use the terms. Uh, it's called underestimating the difficulty of the task, thinking that, wow, look at, you know, this master, he's created this artwork in 10 minutes, you know. Well, yeah, but how many years of teaching was there before that, you know? And usually you're looking at a lifetime of learning and studying. What's very interesting is when you go uh, and, and you start teaching, it's people that are total beginners that have the assumption that this is easy. The more you go into professionals, the more they know that they know very little, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be one of the the things about teaching and learning that's universal. The more you know, the more you become a master at something, the more you realize how little you really know. Um, and it's true of me. I mean, I, right now I'm working on composition. I'm working on writing on composition. And I wrote already, you know, a, an essay on composition that's published in my book, Mastering Landscape Photography. And, and, I and as I started studying composition further, you know, to go beyond that, I realized that I really knew very little after all. There was entire concepts that I had never, never thought of. Um, and you have to be able to admit it, you know, uh, because people say, well, look, he says he knows everything, but he doesn't know composition. Well, it's not a criticism. <laughs> you know, a criticism is, is, you know, pretending to know when you don't know. I'm not pretending to know. I'm saying I don't know as much as I could know. That's different. It's, it's opening the door to new knowledge um, and being comfortable with that. You know, and, and the, second, the second thing that's really a hurdle in learning is people have a very tight comfort zone. You know, their comfort zone is something that they don't want to walk out of, you know. And I always compare the comfort zone to a plate. You know, just imagine a, a plate, for example, a, a, a desert plate, a small plate, maybe five, seven inches in diameter. That's your comfort zone. And that comfort zone includes everything that you've, all, that you've done in the past, that you've already done, that you've been successful at, or that you've come to know intimately, and you're comfortable with that. And you can keep doing these things until the end of your life and continue feeling comfortable with it. But if you do that, you cannot progress. You cannot improve. You cannot get better. Because getting better is going out of this comfort zone, finding things that you're not familiar with already, that you don't know, that you're not comfortable doing. And, and the only way to learn is to constantly step out of that comfort zone. And, and that's very hard for some people. Isn't it Edward Weston who really refused to answer the questions about what makes a good composition? It was just the strongest way of seeing. Mm -hmm. Not not a whole lot of guidance there. Um, I don't know that Ansel wrote a lot about composition. I, I think I've read most of what he had written in mm -hmm. terms of his teachings. And I'm sure there's some there, but... For, it sounds like, well, I, and I know how you write, and I, I fully ex expect a an in-depth exploration of the topic, which, right. like you said, I'm not sure many people have done that, and actually most people try to avoid it or slough it off as saying, well, this is one person's opinion. But even if it is, you're going to awaken me to new ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what, what happens is, you know, you have to start 
from from somewhere. And the place where I start is simply, well, I, I could I could say I'm the expert on composition. I wrote this essay. But really, if I look at it more carefully, I realize that there is a whole lot of things that I haven't really paid attention to, you know, that I haven't really written about. Some of them I, I simply did not know. Others, and this is one of the most interesting discovery of, of this project, uh, others are things that I did not think were part of composition. Okay? Um, and I don't want to go into detail here because I, I want to wait until the project is finished. But there is entire fields of, of knowledge that uh, you know, I have, uh, I, I use folders on my computer to, to, to keep every area, you know, I call them steps. And, and I had these folders, and I, I wasn't sure where they go. Well, they do go into composition, although at first it seems like they wouldn't. But I found a way to organize, you know, you know the photography in, in a very simple way. And, and obviously at that point it's clear that this goes here, this goes there. So, so there is there is that aspect also, you know, the classification of knowledge, you know, you know, and, and you have the same surprises that people have when they learn that a whale is really a mammal because you don't think of a mammal swimming, right? But the difference between mammals and, and other types of animals is not whether they swim or they walk. The difference is whether they have lungs or not. And you know, when you when you have that, then the classification becomes a lot easier, right? You know, that is a fish is not a mammal because a fish doesn't have lungs, it has gills that filter water and get oxygen that way. But a whale has lungs and they have to surface on a regular basis to fill up their lungs again. So, you know, you have to find a way to classify knowledge. And in a sense, nobody needs to know that this is not something that's important for the student, but it's very, very important for the teacher because uh, a lot of the, the work of the teacher is organizing the knowledge so that we can present coherent bodies of work. Uh, this morning, I was, I'm working also on my marketing seminar. I'm always trying to enrich all the courses that I teach or the tutorials that I have. And it dawned on me last night that I really have to include negotiation as one of the contents of the marketing seminar because just with every sale is a negotiation. So that's going to be part of the next seminar. But until last night, I had never thought that that was part of marketing. Um, and interestingly enough, it, it happened because I went to have uh, lunch yesterday with some friends, and we talked about, about negotiating. And uh, the person that is a couple, you know, they, are, they do very well, and, and I enjoy their company. And uh, he said, you know, in negotiating, the person that asks us is always in the weak position. And, I, and, I, and that triggered a thought in my mind because I had never thought of it that way. I thought the person that asks us is, is is just trying to negotiate. You know, but it, indeed, you know, there's a, a point can be made that they are in a weak position. So I immediately related that to setting artwork, and I started thinking, well, you know, <laughs> I really need to teach that <laughs> as part of marketing. So I, I included it. So we, are, I'm not just creating new knowledge. I'm also enriching. You know, uh, I'm, I'm making it as a, as a building process where things become you know, richer is more content in a way. I kind of liken it to Golf Digest for any golfers. And mm -hmm. you kind of bring awareness to some things we need to think about, and there are countless dozens. And I know the photographer, uh, the golfer can sometimes get overwhelmed with the mechanics of the swing, but mm -hmm. it can, it's just bringing that 
awareness to the certain situation. And maybe as a photographer, we go out after just reading your composition, and maybe we're going to be temporarily extremely strong in our composition awareness. And but you know, we have to revisit the other parts of it as well, uh, from all techniques to uh, identifying what it is we're trying to communicate on an artistic level. Uh, and so you know, you can't over, you can't weight it toward what you're currently strong in, but it just needs to be a component. And that's why I guess my point is to really participate in all of your teachings and your learnings and realize how they all do come together and hopefully making us a better photographer overall and uh, not just rest on one particular writing that you have because all of your writings cover in-depth each of these topics, and I think they're all interrelated and uh, build almost build on each other. Some could be almost independent or exclusive, but mm-hmm. I think they're all pretty uh, dependent on each other. Yeah, well, I like to work on series. Uh, I, I found that, you know, because I address such a very wide audience of people that are, you know, very early beginners to people that are much more experienced or, or have done photography for, you know, 10, 20 years. I found that the best way to address everybody is to have a comprehensive tutorial, and that's what I'm working on now. It takes a lot more time. The the one that I have now, the mastery uh, printing DVD, took me one year to create, and I expect the composition to take about as long. And I'm just at the beginning, so it might be released, you know, next summer or next Christmas. Um, the, the the reason for the comprehensive thing is that no matter where you are in the process, you're, you're going to have something for you because it covers the entire process. Um, and there, there might be something at the level of the foundation, there might be something at the level of the detail, there might be the whole thing. But there is some, and there is something also for the future where as you grow, you can go back and have access to you know, knowledge that you passed on previously because it was too complex. Uh, so that, that to me is the most satisfying, and it has proven to be the most useful to students because they can basically work on it you know, at their own level you know, and, and at their own pace. So that's what I'm trying to do. It's not unheard of. Um, actually, in, in level work, when I studied level work, there is one particular American level worker that wrote extensively called Al Stallman. He died of cancer um, in the late 1990s, I think. But Al had an extensive collection of books that were all published pretty much by the Tandy Level Company, which went bankrupt and then now came back into business, which is basically the lever company for the United States. Uh, you know, you find 10 lever and basically um, you don't have to find a whole lot more. But his books were basically building on each other. But he, he started pretty much the way I started, which is you start somewhere. It doesn't really matter. You know, you, you start somewhere. And then you build up the, the, the teaching over time by filling the blanks, basically, you know. So you start at how, learning how to do maybe a belt, and then you start and teach how to make handbags, and maybe, you know, later on, briefcases, and in this case, he also has books on saddles. But there's no particular place to start, and then there's no particular place to end, because the process is endless. As I grow, just like as he, his style of, of level work would change, he would write new books to explain how he was now doing this, right? So if tomorrow I, I start doing a, a different type of photography, then I can explain how I do that different type of photography. And, and in a sense, that's sort of what happened with composition, because my way of composing changed quite a bit 
from the time that I wrote the composition essay, which must have been three, four years ago, until uh, early earlier this year, and it no longer applies. It's, it is a whole lot more going on now when I compose than just following the, the rules of composition. Uh, so so that, that becomes one of the interesting things. The, the rules of composition in my current way of looking at composition are one step out of something like 25 steps. So that leaves 24 steps that most people <laughs> would basically say, and what are they? Well, what they are is, is the contents of the, of the tutorial. But it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, and then on top of that, uh, the, the, the rules are found to uh, many more. So right now I think I have nine. And I think by the time I'm done, I'll probably have anywhere from 15 to 20. So, so there is other rules of composition, but in a sense, there is an infinite amount of rules. You know, there is there's an infinite number of, of, of guidelines, but they're eventually just guidelines, and and uh, they fit within a much larger context, and and that's what's missing. Um, and, and I think we always assume that there is nothing else to it because, you know, maybe Edward Weston said, you know, composition is the strongest way of seeing, and we are left with that, and we go with that. But it's one person's opinion, you know. You had some interesting comments the other day, Elon, about uh, kind of we, we were discussing the history of photography, obviously the, the evolution of digital and the transformation from a chemical darkroom to to the digital processes today, and, and I think what you were making were some points with respect to the tools and approaches that black and white photographers were making in the darkroom, and how color mm -hmm. photography was probably in a little bit of a, a, a middle area there, probably not capitalizing on all of the strengths of the traditional right. darkroom, right. and how digital maybe has has given that new life. Uh, I'd like yeah. to hear your comments yeah, on that. What happened is people always think, well, black and white is art, color is not art. And, and truly, you know, if you look at it from an objective perspective and, and from the perspective of, of the visual arts, you know, and especially the two-dimensional visual arts, which are basically drawing, painting, and photography, maybe ceramics, there's really no logic black and white being more artistic than color. Because if you look at painting, well, the most artistic is, for most people, if you say, well, tell me which one is most artistic, a drawing or a painting, most people will probably say, well, it's a toss-up. If they have enough experience with, with drawings, they will know that um, some of the masters, like Rembrandt, did an enormous amount of drawings. Or if they don't have experience, they'll think of modern art and they'll say one painting, right? Because the modern artists did very little sketches, right? So, but but nobody in their normal mind will say, well, drawing is, you know, more artistic. Right. I can't think of a a drawing that yeah. uh, that I can reference quickly right. off the top of my head. Yeah. I mean, if you take a big enough sample, you obviously are going to have a few people, a small percentage, maybe a few percent, that will say a drawing. It's always going to happen that way. But if you look at it as a bell curve, the top of the curve will be uh, probably painting, and, and the shape of the curve will be a very, very steep wall, almost like going straight up from a few people that say drawing to most of them saying painting. Now, you go to photography, and you have the exact inverse. Most people say black and white is more artistic than color. While with, with other visual arts, people would say, like I said, color, painting, which is always in color, 
um, except for a very small number of modern arts that were black and white. Uh, painting is, is color, is more artistic than drawing. So why this reversal? Right? That, that's, you know, I'm sort of saying the stage here. Why this reversal? Essentially because in the history of photography, until digital photography, and I would even argue until now, because now we are starting to have all the tools we need to really work color photographs, until then, it was hardly possible to do anything to a color photograph when printing it. However, when it came to black and white, we could do an enormous amount of things. Uh, you know, for proof, Ansel Adams' darkroom series uh, that consists of the negative, the print, and uh, there's one on Polaroid photography also, and it had one on natural light. Um, the camera, the negative, and the print, that's the three tones of the series, which is basically all about how to convey into a print the emotions that the photographer experienced when he mm -hmm. saw the original scene, you know, three books. There's never been anything like that written on color film photography. And, and there won't be, because now it's too late, and we never had the kind of control with darkroom color photography that people had with black and white darkroom photography. I mean, I don't want to go into all the details of what can be done in the darkroom, uh, for black and white, but an enormous amount of things can be done. You can control the contrast of the negative through the film development in very sophisticated ways. Uh, the whole, that's the whole basis of the zone system. And then you can control the contrast and the tone of the black and white print to a very large extent through different grades of paper, through many darkroom processes, through chemicals, and then through even toning and even processing after the print is dry and retouching. When you go to color, you cannot affect the, the the development of a color film in any given way uh, without shifting the color, okay? Um, so that basically mixes that part. You can underdevelop and overdevelop a little bit to gain a stop or lose a stop or two of contrast, of, of, of speed, you know, but eventually you, you get color shifts. So you can't go very far. Uh, when it comes to the darkroom, the only thing we could do was mask with a contrast mask for the contrast and mask with color mask for the color. And that was extremely complex and, and resulted in color shifts and uneven color balance. Uh, the person that went the furthest, probably in my knowledge, in color printing with a, a high level of control was Joseph Holmes, who designed a color additive enlarger, uh, an enlarger that would add color to the light with different sources of light, different filters, filtering at the source of the light and not under the lens like it's done usually. And his enlarger took three years to create and cost him $100,000. And when he was done with it, he made about a thousand prints and then digital came along and, he, and now it's sitting in his darkroom not being used. And, and what he said is, you know, if you ask him, uh, I asked him, a lot of people ask him, why quit, uh, you know, after doing this incredible work with your enlarger? Well, and, and his answer is because digital is so much better, you know. Uh, he, he can create the finest prints that he's ever created now. And I believe it. I mean, I, I went to his house and I saw his original silver crows, and I saw his original inkjet prints. <laughs> I would never buy a silver chrome. <laughs> never. I mean, they are just... Uh, they are, and, and then the other thing was the... You know, the hoax of Sivakrom in terms of longevity. The last test of uh, Henry Wilhelm, and Henry is a very close friend of Joseph Holmes, showed that when Henry did his original test of Sivakrom and estimated the lifetime to about 29 years, he had a 4x factor um, that was, it was off, off by a factor of four times because 
you had, uh, you know, done accelerator tests and you hadn't paid attention to, to much to a, some variables, I'm not sure which one. It turns out that Cibochrome has a lifespan of four years. Um, <laughs> pretty scary. Four years? Yeah, before, you know, significant fitting happens. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I can't verify it because I don't have any Cibochrome, but um, that's what he's saying now, you know. But it's very, very short. You're going to start to see a very little bit of fitting if you remove the mat and you look at under the mat and the problem was exposed to the light. Well, like others, I too did have to ask Joseph Holmes about which print. Is he printing better now than he ever did? And with oh, yeah. uh, his digital, he, he unabashedly said yes. Yeah. I mean, we all want to know because he is somebody that devoted, four, you know, I mean, four years of his life building an enlarger and, you know, many more years printing before that with other uh, cyberchrome processors. And all of a sudden he's switching. I mean, he's not switching because it's easier. He's switching because it's better. Yeah. Um, so, so we have today, you know, to go back to the discussion for the first time, and I, and I, like I said, I argue for the first time, just a few years back, right? Maybe when. Yeah. I mean, so when did he complete his enlarger? Um, I don't know. I mean, he, he started using digital around 1993, and I think he must have completed his enlarger around 1990, something like that. So he, here, here we are looking at what we're guessing is, like you said, there, there's no one more in depth than Joseph Holmes on quality and, and minutia of detail. And here it is, 1990, probably getting the best color production possible through an enlarger and through chromes, correct? Right, right, exactly. In 1990. Yeah. <laughs> and. And I mean, he published his book um, called Natural Light in 1989. So that's that's why I'm saying 1990 mm -hmm. because he had to make the print for the book. So I, I would think the enlarger was finished about that time. The, the the thing that's the most amazing is Joe could only print a small number of his original transparencies through Cibochrome because some of them were so far off in terms of color balance. For example, snow scenes that were not color balanced when you photograph that turn out all gray and all blue, you know. They get affected by underexposure, which is normal for a snow scene, and then they get affected by bluish cast. And all of that is virtually impossible to remove in an enlarger because you have to increase the density of the light and filter the blue at the same time, and, it's, and then it's not even. You have more blue in the shadows and in the highlights, you know, which means, you know, the, the enlarger is unable to know what's a shadow, what's a highlight. So you filter everything, so the highlights turn out to be now yellowish, and the shadows are, are clean. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Because yellow is the opposite of blue. Well, and then some, some photographs, he has one on his website called uh, Elvis Chasm, which is a photograph taken at Grand Canyon. And it's a very contrasty scene. And when he photographed it, he decided to privilege the highlights. Uh, and he could never get it printed. I mean, the, the shadows were so dark that he could not mm -hmm. get it printed. Yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar camera. with the, the photograph. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we all have some of those, and until he scanned it and was able to open the shadows and, and create this beautiful print, which is actually one of his, uh, you know, one of his most popular images, and, and to him, he's still in awe that, you know, he said, you know, I almost threw it away, because he, he actually went to several printers and said, can we do something with that, and, and we couldn't. So there is not just the, the fact that we can create more with digital photography when it comes to color, that we can affect the color more, that we can 
what I would say, interpret a color photograph more, that we can interpret it to the level that people could interpret a black and white negative. But there is also the fact that we can rescue photographs that could never be printed mm -hmm. in the chemical uh, system. And, you know, to go back to the issue of black and white versus color and which one is more artistic than the other, the, the fact is that there isn't one that's more artistic. Mm -hmm. Photography can be done in color or in black and white. But what is happening is that for a long time, people were looking at which of the two was more creative, which of the two was able to bring in more of the personality of the photographer. Which of the or could show things differently. Exactly. Could be interpreted by the photographer in different ways at different times in their lives. Exactly. And obviously it was black and white. Because color, you could not do anything to it. Or you shifted the color, right? So, so you printed a color photograph once and that was it, you know. Um, you really could not, you didn't have that leeway of interpretation. Exactly. And now with digital, we have that leeway. And, and the problem has now shifted. Uh, the problem is no longer can we. We can. Uh, I tell people, if you can think of it, probably we can find a way to do it. The problem has become, should we? <laughs> is it okay to, to do that? And a lot of people are saying, no, it's not, because we are going by the, the previous rules, which were unwritten rules, which were essentially technical rules that said, well, we can't do anything to color photographs, so we are not going to do anything to color photographs. We're basically <laughs> going to print them as is and try to match the chrome, which was a reasonable goal. If you can see it in the original, you probably can print it. Well, that works for color you know, negative and, and transparencies, but when it comes to digital, it no longer applies because we no longer have these limitations. So we have to now set a new standard, a new way of thinking, and what I propose, and which I think a lot of people are, are embracing, is that we, we, we make the call based on the purpose of the photographer and not on whether it's color or black and white. And, and the purpose has to be clear. For example, my purpose is to take landscape photographs that represent what I felt when I photographed the scene. They are expressive photographs. They are artistic photographs. They make no claim of representing reality as somebody else might see it. They claim to represent reality as I experienced it, not just as I saw it, but as I experienced it with all my five senses. You know, photographs are just visual, but when I'm there, when we're anywhere, we have a sense of touch, smell, hearing, you know, emotions, and so on. Now, if I was doing journalism, I, I probably could not do that because I would have to be faithful to the original scene in order to convey to the reader a true impression of what really happened. Okay. Uh, and a lot of people say, well, with journalism, they can't add anything to the photo. That is, they can't, you know, add a fr another person or remove something from the scene. Well, that's part of it. But they can't also enhance the color, make blood redder than it is. Or, you know, I mean, uh, there's, there's a whole domain of, of, of interpretation that, that go beyond adding or removing objects. You know, uh, I, I took a photograph of my backyard the other day, a month ago, for a contractor and he had built a structure on top of a water line that's an irrigation line. And, of course, it was running through the foundation, so I wanted him to cut it off and, and you, know, you know, put an end to that which, because the line could leak. So the line, I could take a photo, and you could barely see the line because it's a, it's a black line. But the connector at the end from that water hose to the main water hose had a blue color around it. So what I did is I emphasized the color of the color. You know, I, I made it more blue in order to jump at, at the person that would see the photo. Is it ethical or not? It's not totally ethical because I'm emphasizing reality. You know, I'm doing it for a simple purpose to make it more visible, but, you know, 
um, some, somebody could say, well, if you hadn't done that, it may not have been seen at all, right? So, you know, we, we're on very hazy ground. Um, I'm not affected by it because I do art, so I'm, I don't have a responsibility the way a, a reporter do, does, but, you know, it's things to think about. I think at the recent workshop on the Fine Art Summit, you asked the question, or someone asked, about how many here are using film versus digital, and mm -hmm. I believe it was 100% digital. Yeah, yeah. yeah because and and now are you finding in a workshop like that, is there um, a, a reluctance to embrace color as, uh, like you're saying, uh, pretty much no holds barred? Uh, mm -hmm. No holds barred, yeah. Well, what I'm finding is that regarding film versus digital, fewer and fewer and fewer people use film. Um, and to some extent, I think we're going to get to the point where nobody will use film, except if we want to do some what we call traditional processes, you know, like we, I think we are going to look at um, what's called silver printing, you know, which is making a black and white print in the darkroom as an exotic process, and there's going to be people that are going to be embracing it as a historical process. But short of that, there is no good reason to use film now unless you use large format and you can't have the resolution with, 30, with, with 35 or medium format because there is hardly any solution for large format cameras except the better light scanning back, which, you know, because of the length of the exposure, which is three to four to five minutes, is so long that it makes it impossible to photograph a lot of subjects when things are moving, you know, water, leaves, uh, and of course animals. So, and, but what we see now is people like Joseph Holmes have, have stopped using their 4 by 5 and now do stitching. So Joseph will take 20 photographs of one scene in several rows and stitch them together into a super high resolution photograph. Because, and why is he doing that? You know, Natalie told him, she said, why not just use the 4 by 5 and do one shot and be done, right? Uh, and, and the reason is because it's so much easier to color calibrate a digital file. Um, and also easier to work on a digital file because it has less problems than film. Because film is analog, and the scanner is basically an analog to digital converter. And in the conversion, all sort of things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, you have in a hand grain, uh, the scanner is not always able to pick up the details in the shadows. Um, but then also you have this problem of color balance because the film has a specific curve, and it's a, it has a toe, and it has a, 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 a straight line, and then it has a shoulder. And the way the color is balanced in the toe, in the straight line, and in the shoulder is different. So basically, in a good film, you have at least a difference of color balance in highlights and in shadows. Hopefully, the middle part is level standard even. But in, in some films, there is literally three different areas of color balancing. So you have to literally color balance the photograph for the shadows, for the highlights, and maybe for the mid-tones, depending on your film. With digital, it's all flat. It's, it, there's no curve. It's a straight line from shadows to highlights. And you can color balance at any point. So if you have, in a photograph, any point that's a known white or black or pure gray point, we can just click on it and color balance the photograph that way. It's immediate. It's, it's you know, like magic. So right there is one reason to have digital, plus the fact that you have a much cleaner file. And, and, and a little easier to put in the backpack. What's that? And a little easier to carry in the backpack, even with his panoramic stitching gear. Yeah, it's well, yeah. probably close to the four by five. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's uh, mm -hmm. significantly lighter, but it's probably, it's mm -hmm. probably lighter. 
Yeah, but I think the word is eventually the the least of, of anybody's concern. The, the concern is uh, which one of these two tools is going to give me the highest quality result. And it is a 35 in the case of drill with multiple stitching. You get better results than if you shoot 4x5 film. Now, that's going to change the minute we have a 4x5 bag that works. And I think we're going to have that pretty soon. Uh, Sage, uh, which is a Swiss company, came up with a digital uh, panoramic camera during Photokina uh, this year that has a scanning bag that can scan the entire photograph in one second, as opposed to digital uh, scanning bags from better light that take three to five minutes. And a 6x9 format, correct? Yeah, it's a little smaller than 4x5, but it, you know, better light is also a little smaller than 4x5. Um, but the speed is fantastic, and they do that by multiplying the array, you know, as opposed to having a single array. So maximum speed increase, uh, now it's faster than film. Now we have 4x5, it's faster than 4x5 film. Uh, and and if, they, if they can adapt the bike to 4x5, which they say they will do, then we've got a winning solution. Uh, what's very interesting is people would say, well, yes, but what's the cost? The cost will be $30,000. That seems to be the, the standard price right. in a high-resolution digital bag, whether it's medium format or 4x5. But the, the fact is that the cost is not our concern. The, 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 our concern is, does it exist? And right now, it doesn't exist at any cost. Whether we are willing to pay any amount, it, it just is not available. So we are, we are looking at a very interesting situation where we just don't have a solution. You know, regardless of how much it costs, um, so we, we have to make do. Um, we we've talked a little bit about how potentially the digital has changed your teaching on the field workshops, and I, I just was thinking about how much time you spend uh, as a percentage, for instance, discussing equipment uh, techniques versus uh, composition and artistic qualities. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, or even even a third or fourth category, if if one comes to mind. I spend as little time as I as I can discussing equipment. Uh, I, I will discuss equipment when there is specific questions with equipment. Otherwise, I don't think that the camera is all that important. I, I think that most people today will use a 35 millimeter uh, SLR, DSLR, digital single lens reflex, or a digital medium format camera. That being said, you know, the difference between the two is basically size uh, of the captor and, and the image file size. Otherwise, they operate pretty much the same, you know, with minor changes. What I spend most of my time doing is teaching people how to, to see something, how, how to compose, how to create a personal style, how to look at the world from their own perspective as opposed to just following the style of somebody else. That, to me, is where we can make all the difference. Because with digital, something has happened that wasn't the case with film. With film, the problems of printing and film development were so high. I mean, you would go to one lab, you would get a different quality than another lab. You know, if you paid a good lab, you would have a higher quality development than a bad lab. I mean, in Paris, I knew one lab, which was a pro lab, that had a very small number of people, and you would drop your film, and you would get it back within an hour, and you paid maybe $20 how that one role of film developed. Or you could go to uh, a much larger camera store, which, which had a good reputation, and drop your film there, and wait a week, and get it back. And literally, you could have shot the same thing, and the color was just so much better in, in the pro lab. I mean, literally, cleaner color. 
because we would change our baths longer because we had calibrated the temperature perfectly and the timing and all of that. Um, just that. With digital, you know, if we both use the same camera, we're going to use, we're going to get the exact same colors, right? <laughs> you know, that's it's going to happen. There is no need, <clears throat> no need to worry about that. Uh, same thing with focus. We are going to focus automatically. We're going to have sharp photographs. We have anti-shake lenses, <clears throat> so that even if we handhold the photograph and the camera, we are not going to have shake. Uh, we have auto white balance. We have. Uh, I mean, count, countless number of things. You know, uh, exposure control. We have the histogram that allows us to verify exposure in the field. A lot of problems that used to be very important problems uh, with film are out of the window with digital. Because uh, you know, with film, you had to wait until you, you got your film back from the lab to know whether you had exposed property or not. With digital, you know that by looking at the histogram. It's immediate. So an entire domain of knowledge doesn't have to be taught anymore. Okay, to the point where in some universities you have instructors that continue to teach exactly the way they taught during darkroom days because if they don't, they really don't know what else to teach. They would basically lose their job. Okay. Yeah, I just ran into an acquaintance, a recent graduate uh, with a bachelor's in fine arts and photography who did not know how to calibrate a monitor with a spider. Mm-hmm. And I found right. that quite mm -hmm. astonishing. Yeah, I, I talked to somebody the other day, and I can't remember who it is, that told me that his or her teacher was teaching them how to basically make a print in the darkroom. And, and she said, why? I mean, I don't want to do that. I have no interest. I, I want to learn how to make digital prints. And I said, it's probably because he doesn't know anything else. Mm -hmm. I said, how long has he taught? And she said, something like 30 years. And I said, there you have it. That person just does not know how to teach anything else. That they have spent 30 years teaching this subject. All of a sudden, darkroom is out, digital is in. And what they realize is that they've got five years to go until they retire, and they are not going to learn this new technique. They're going to keep teaching that until they die, basically. Yeah, I, I found that as well with camera clubs who set up these rules that uh, you know have these categories for enhanced and digital enhanced, and uh, I, I trying to separate it out. And I think it's largely because you know they don't know how to do it, and they feel like right. they're going to be at a disadvantage to allow these other prints in competition, and, and they they come about it from a standpoint like you discussed earlier. If you knew what Ansel did in the darkroom, if you knew what Jerry Olsman did way before Photoshop, you understand the capabilities in a digital in a traditional darkroom are right. only matched by a digital. It's just color, like you were saying. Right. Right. And yeah, uh, we, we could do in the, in the darkroom. We could do everything that we can do with digital with black and white. I mean, we can do a few more things, but black and white printing on on a computer. Digital black and white printing is not all that much better right. than darkroom black and white printing. Some people will even argue that it's not better at all. And you know, when you compare some of the black and white prints that uh, Ansel Adams or Edward Weston made, and I have a Weston in my collection, I have to say that I, that's a valid point. They're probably not any better today. Right. But when you compare color prints, and you know, I have original color prints of silver chrome, 
and I, and I saw, you know, Joe, Joseph Holmes' original silver chromes and unique Ezekiel prints of the same photograph. It's night and day. I mean, nobody in their normal mind would say, give me the silver chrome. You know, maybe it's a better investment. I mean, that would have to be defined. But in terms of artistic enjoyment, it's a, it's a no-contest situation. The, the inkjet print is more enjoyable. Um, the, the problem with camera clubs, and not just them, but you know, a whole range of, of, uh, of people that try to cl classify photography in categories, is that if you stop having these categories such as digitally enhanced, darkroom, you know, foot, you know, this and that, I mean, I don't even know what they are. You, you know, you name them better. They than still I. have a slide category. Yeah, flies. The problem is if you say, okay, we don't use that, then what do you use, right? The only solution is to use artistic categories. Exactly. Personal expression, individual style, you know, uh, maybe, co you know, bring in the, the, the artistic aspect, the way it has been done in painting before. I mean, you know, I always compare photography and painting because it's a very, very rich subject when it comes to finding enlightenment uh, in, in trying to understand the digital versus film photography. When you look at painting competitions, you don't have competitions with flies or, you know, digitally enhanced or darkroom. I mean, you have competitions on landscapes, right? You have competitions on portraits, right? They are broad categories, you know, because all of these concerns either never existed or have been led to rest a long time ago. Right. You, know. you might have a, 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 I don't even know, would they separate acrylic versus oil? And even then, you know, if you go into museums, they they might just say, you know, acrylic as as the medium, but they don't. It's not like if you go to a museum, you have a section for acrylic painting, and exactly, for watercolors, and a section for oils. Right. But if you go to an art museum and you look at photography, I think they are they are almost dying to get there, where they'll have a section for darkroom and a section for digital. It's absurd. But the problem is is not whether it's absurd or not. The problem, because that's our judgment of the situation, the problem is understanding what the the curators uh, deal with. And what the curators deal with is they don't know what to do, <laughs> right? They have the public coming at them saying, is that digital or darkroom? And, and, and their solution is to say, well, in that room, in Salon A, it's all darkroom. In Salon B, it's all digital. And, and leave it at that. As opposed to saying to the audience, it doesn't matter. Right? Well, this is the, the same public who is not buying any film cameras from any retailer. Yeah, the, the same public that can't wait to get the next digital camera is basically saying, uh, is it digital or film? But that's because the public is con con is, is confused. As you know, the, the role of the art critique and the role of the museum curator and the role of people that organize competitions, you know, large competitions, is, is to actually give guidance to the public. It's yes. not to confuse them more. But what I think is going on today is we have uh, these people that are supposed to give us guidance that are confused themselves and, of course, confusing us even more, right? So we of course, photographers don't help in that many no. times they'll use their equipment or technique as a differentiation in their marketing. Yeah, well, there is, you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's different, you know, marketing is, is also its own, you know, ball of wax, so to speak, uh, where, you know, marketing things come into play. Um, you know, you, you still have photographers that say that they do digital, I'm sorry, they, they do cyberchrome and they do no digital because they want to represent nature as it is, right? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I don't want to give names, you know, but there's several of them. At the same time, 
you look at their prints and they are super saturated colors, extremely high contrast, and you compare that to, let's say, the work of uh, Steven Johnson, who is using digital and makes no secret of it, which is totally flat colors, hardly any contrast at all. But is, is equally adamant about depicting nature yeah, exactly. as accurately as possible. Exactly. And Stephen is saying, oh, this is exactly the way it is. And then, you know, this other uh, landscape photographer who is using Silvercrow is saying, no, this is the way it is. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but it has to be one or the other, <laughs> right? Right. Or they are both wrong, right? You know, and of course they are both wrong because there is no single reality. What is happening is each of these photographers has a very personal style, which is very beautiful, which has its own following. But they should just say that. They should say, right. that's my personal style. Because they are, they are not fooling anybody. The minute one person or two persons, such as ourselves, see it and start to talk about it, everybody is starting to, to come to their senses. And people are starting to say things like, well, how can you represent nature as it is and at the same time have a personal style? I mean, there is a conflict here. Either it is as is, or you have a personal style, and it's as you see it, right? <laughs> you can't have your cake and eat it too, right? You can't do both. You know, you can't have a personal style and represent things as is. And then the other thing is, how, you know, if you would please, if you don't mind, telling me how things when they are as is, because I've never seen them as is. I've seen them as I see them, right? Uh, you know, so, you know, you... you uh, my my personal position, which I think is the best position anybody can can take, because it's the one that will not bring a conflict, is to just say, this is what I do. This is my style. Maybe it is as is. Maybe it's not. It doesn't matter. I'm not trying to say that it is. It's my style. Um, and and then if you do find out, just say, I'm not trying to represent reality. I'm trying to represent my perception of the world, my emotional reaction to the world and go with that. And that will free you, you know, that will let you be whatever it is that you want to be, you know. We had talked uh, a lot about learning techniques, and I, I know there was uh, some, well, there always is some debate about how to utilize critiques, and uh, it was a, a part of the Fine Arts Summit. It's always a part of your, I, I, you actually call them print reviews, mm -hmm. uh, a part of all of your workshops, I believe. Um, and or any that would involve a print uh, printing at the site or uh, bringing prints in, and I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on print reviews and how you incorporate those into your teaching. Well, there's a lot of people that you know. There's a lot of debate about that, uh, but I suppose there's debate on every aspect of digital photography. It, 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 there's two aspects to it. First, what kind of learning style? does a specific student enjoy or look for? And then second, how do you look at yourself? Do you look at yourself as a student or do you look at yourself as a master? That's very important. So I, let's look at both of them. The, the first one is the, the teaching style that I, that I favor, that I use with Natalie, with my wife, and we teach together, is we, we try and, you know, that's our goal, to build self-esteem in, in our students because we believe that self-esteem will result in better work uh, and trying to push the envelope further. Now you have a, another school of, of teaching which I, I call the boot camp sort of approach where you beat the student over the head with an ugly stick, take them apart, and then try to rebuild their self-esteem somehow later on. And every once in a while we have a student that says, well, 
that's what I want. I want you to take me <laughs> apart and then rebuild me. And I always tell them, I say, you know, the first part is no problem. I can take you apart. The problem is the rebuilding. I don't know if I can do it. And I would hate to leave you, you know, as a dismembered person. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not teaching that way, right? I, I teach self-esteem. You know, but I'm sure you're going to find somebody else out there that's willing to beat you over the head with an ugly stick if that's what you want to do, you know, if that's how you want to learn. I just don't do it because I don't think it works. And and the reason why I do that is because the way I learned how to do art was, you know, from the age of five, about that's about as far as I can remember anything, uh, making something, making a drawing or some craft or some painting or any, any sort of artistically oriented activity, and taking it to my parents, and then looking at me, or, and looking at the work, and saying, "Oh, that's very nice," uh, and and you know, I really like what you've done. And me going back and making something more ambitious, okay, and then showing it to them, and them saying, "Oh, you know, that's better. You've gone further. You've done this and that. It's larger. It's more interesting." And and following that process, you know, endlessly, basically. And I truly think that that's how we learn. We, we learn by having encouragement, you know, by having positive feedback. We, we don't learn by having our parents look at us and say, well, you know, that's really horrible. I mean, look at you. You don't have any skills. You should. I mean, that would not have made me want to go and try something else, right? That would have made me want to probably bury my head and, uh, under a pillow and disappear, you know, and never do it again. So, so we, we have to understand that learning happens one step at a time, but we're not going to create the masterpiece the first time we do anything. Uh, actually, it's, it's going to be maybe 100, 1,000 times in the future that the masterpiece will come out. But we need these 100, 1,000 trials because we are building up knowledge and we are building up self-esteem. And, and that's very, very important. So that's the first thing. The, the second thing is whether you're a student or a teacher. And, that, and that's something that really has to be acknowledged. Eventually, it doesn't really matter because I see myself as a student. I mean, I teach, but because I study my own film, mm -hmm. well, now I'm studying composition, I see myself as a student also. That's very important in, in terms of how you accept commentaries, critique, reviews, you know, how may, however you want to call it, feedback on your work. Uh, I have a lot of students that want feedback. You give them feedback, and they're like, well, you know, it's not very helpful. Well, I'm sorry, but that's the best I can do, you know. The, 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 if somebody says something with my work, I'm going to take it uh, from the perspective of whether or not I knew that before the person spoke. Okay, If I knew it before the person spoke and I had reflected on it and I had decided not to do it, then I don't really need to memorize this comment. But if it's something new that I have never thought of, then I'm going to consider it very carefully and, and ask myself, is it something I want to take into consideration or not? Okay. And that's where the student comes in. So it's a matter of attitude. It's not a matter of where you are. Uh, you know, was Ansel Adams a student or a master in his own head? I'm, I'm pretty sure he thought he was a student, you know. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's a matter of position. It's not a matter of how much you know. So that, that's why it's a very important consideration. The, the, the master will refuse the commentary. The student will accept it or at least ask, do I know this already or not, right? And, and I find out that in, in a lot of my students, Sometimes we have people that think they've already mastered the craft. You know, they don't need mm -hmm. anything. And you look at their work, and their work is, you know, it's whatever it is, but it's not really working the world. Um, you know, it might be very technically uh, achieved, but it's definitely without a style of its own. You know, so. In every print review I've been on with you and Natalie, it, it, you're exactly that way, and it and it might just be one uh, comment here or there, and that's. 
you know, again, kind of ties back into what you're saying. It's just that one motivation to go and improve it and bring it back and one more iteration. And I, I know yeah. you worked with uh, Ian Campbell on a one-on-one consulting, and he had presented his his portfolio from Canadian Landscapes and at the at the Fine Arts Summit, and it was just really quite stunning. I thought the quality was excellent. I enjoyed it thoroughly, and his pride in his work was evident. And you know, the, the role of the teacher, in my mind, is as a, as a is that of a facilitator, somebody that just says, "It's okay." You know, I, I mean, I remember very clearly the day that one of my teachers came to me and said, "You're an artist." That was a defining moment in my life. Mm-hmm. And if that hadn't happened, I don't know if I would be here today. <laughs> I really mm-hmm. don't know. I probably wouldn't. Because how do you know? Right? Somebody has to tell you. Somebody has to say it's okay. So, you know, the, the same with Ian, you know, showing us his portfolio. I mean, he brought it from Canada. He, you know, you can imagine the way it's on the plane and so on. And he probably doesn't want to check it in. Who knows what he, you know. So, um, and, and, and him coming and, it's very important for me to say, you know, you have achieved something, you know, because it's true, it's an achievement. The, the one thing that people hear the least in our culture, and I think in the whole Western world, and maybe the whole world, uh, I don't know, but I'm, I'm starting to think so, is very good job. That's the one thing that people hear the least, you know, good job, congratulations. Um, I mean, I say it to the UPS driver, I say, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful that you delivered it on time. You know, and, and you should see their face. They're like, oh, well, thank you so much. You know, And, of course, the next time it's even faster, right? So they, they get better, right? You know, you, you can see the, the validity in my teaching approach. I mean, anybody that's listening to this recording can, can try this at home. Just compliment people that you see regularly. I mean, compliment everybody, but, you know, compliment people also that you see regularly and see how much their performance improves. It will improve. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I see it with everybody. It, it's a normal human nature thing, you know. We 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 perform better when we know we are appreciated, which is the whole basis of my teaching. And that's why people that say I want to be taken apart and rebuilt, uh, it doesn't work, you know. That's what they think works, but it doesn't work. Uh, at least I don't think it does. Uh, well, it's much more than just a photograph. Everybody, no matter what they've done with one photograph, it is, it's them, it's themselves. They poured themselves into it. You're, you're not critiquing, you're not reviewing or critiquing, depending on what language you want to use, a photograph. You're critiquing a piece of that person, <laughs> you know, and a, a very, and, and if the person is stressful of the teacher, then it becomes a, a more and more personal aspect that's in that piece of work. Uh, and and you know I have this. It's a responsibility that I have, uh, you know, to 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 word my comments in a, in a way that they can be received, you know, uh, appropriately, um, and and not have the inverse effect that I'm willing that I'm trying to have. You don't want to turn anybody down and stop them from creating. You want people to uh, to be acknowledged as having done the effort, and then point uh, to a few things that we can do. And and you can never point to everything because you know you're never going to take somebody that just began to, uh, you know, the state of somebody that has done this for 20 years in one step. It's never going to happen. And if you throw in too much, you're going to overwhelm them. You have to point to something that can be resolved in in the foreseeable future, right? I think that's what a lot of people kind of fail to see with your approach and what you have to offer is that they often want a quick answer uh, mm-hmm. to, to, a, to a problem, whatever it is, or solution or guidance and and it could be anything from photography to life philosophy 
and and I'm they kind of want a question answered on a discussion forum, and I don't know. I think it's very short sighted on their part to not understand how complex. I mean, here we are speaking over an hour on just teaching and philosophy behind photography and artistic intent and well a, a lot of people you know that's what i explain very often and i may have explained it earlier on on this call uh, they, they underestimate the difficulty of the task <clears throat> they don't realize how hard it is they think oh look alan made a beautiful composition i'm going to ask him how he composed it and i'm going to go out and make a beautiful mm-hmm. composition they don't realize that before i did that one um, I, I did one million of us, but just were complete failures. Uh, there is a, a wonderful quote in a little book called The Blank Canvas, and I have it here. I just uh, bought it again at Amazon. I had a copy and I lost it. It's called The Blank Canvas, and it's uh, published. Uh, it's, it's written by somebody called Anna Held Odet. And there is a, a small anecdote in there of a Chinese artist who is a painter and a drawer who is commissioned by a client to draw a picture of a rooster. And he tells the client, he says, well, come back in one month, and I will have a picture of a rooster. And the client, you know, probably thinks, well, that's a little bit long, but, you know, whatever, I mean, he's the artist, I'll just come back. So one month later, the client comes back, and the artist pulls out of a drawer the most incredible drawing of a rooster ever possible. I mean, this client just looks at it and... They're like, wow, you know, I have to have this. How much is it? Is it? And the artist quotes an enormously, an outrageous price, you know, and uh, this is in China, so I don't know what it would be in U.S. dollars, but maybe $10,000 for this one, you know, 11 by 14 or 16 by 20 drawing of a rooster. And the client says, uh, <laughs> I know it's beautiful, but come on, you know, this is outrageous, you know, this is highway robbery. And the artist says nothing, uh, brings the client to a closet, opens the door, and inside the closet are tens of thousands of drawings of roosters. Uh, that's the price. <laughs> you know, that's what you're paying for. It's not the one piece in front of you. It's all the work that went into taking, you know, that photograph, right. reading that one drawing of a rooster. And, of course, when photographers price their work, they say, well, it cost me five cents for the paper and 20 cents for the mat, and I bought a pen and a little bit of ink, and, you know, so I'm going to say it for... $20 and make maybe $10 profit, they are completely besides the point. You never mm-hmm. make money this way because you're never going to sell a whole lot of them. You know, you, you have to really understand that the value of art is not the value of the paper, the ink, and whatever else. It's the value of your work. Uh, and, and that's also a matter of self-esteem, that, that you have to build your self-esteem to the point where this, you find it perfectly legitimate to charge whatever you feel. Right. And I think if one comes from that standpoint in full confidence that the customer picks up on it, it's, it's you know, very easy well, to see. It's very transparent. I, I think that, you know, the, the comment that I get all the time when I say that is people will say, well, I, I, did, I said that to a, an artist at a show one day, and he said, well, if I did that, I'd lose all my customers. And I said, but do you want to keep them? <laughs> you know, because look, Can you afford to keep them? <laughs> yeah, can you afford to keep them? Look, you're starving. You're, you're, we're talking because things are not happening. Uh, well, it's a very important question. The, the customer that truly cares about your work, that truly wants your work, that appreciates what you're doing, will, you know, pay the amount that you ask, provided that it's within reason. You know, of course, you know, we won't, we don't want to price the rooster at ten million dollars, for example. But 
On the other hand, the customer that just wants something to decorate their wall will never pay that price because they don't see the reason. They can go to Walmart and have it framed, ready to display for $25. So you really have to pay attention very carefully to your audience. And you have to really, and that's a matter of personal self-esteem, understand that the true audience, your true audience, are people who love your work. They are not people that want something to decorate their wall because they can go anywhere. You know, the way I always put it is, if you if you if what you sell is a photograph of Grand Canyon, you probably can ask twenty dollars. But if what you sell is an Alan Brio or a Jeff Ball or you know your name, then the price is up to you, because there is only one of these. There is only one of these people. While the Grand Canyon, there is as many as there is photographers that photograph the Grand Canyon. So, you know, the, the art approach, you know, and, and the marketing of art is, is, you know, something that. Most photographers sort of miss, you know, they price their work according to the Walmart marketing scheme, you know. Right. You're competing with Michaels for wall decor. And, right. Uh, I, I think it, it, yeah. And, and I don't know. I don't. Michaels has a special on Saturday morning in Arizona where everything is 50% off. I mean, if you sell your work for $20, 50% off is $10. At this point, you're paying people to buy your work. <laughs> you know. Uh, and, and, you know, it's a joke, and it's a funny joke, but the fact is that I have done the math, and I know for a fact that there is a lot of artists that are paying their customers to basically buy their work. Right. Um, there is no doubt. I mean, I bought a print. Um, I'm not going to give a name, but I bought a print from an artist, and I bought it because it's very beautiful, for $20 with shipping, and it's an 11 by 17 print, or maybe 13 by 19, I can't remember. So you have the paper, you have the ink, you have the tube, you have the shipping. All of that comes pretty close to $10, you know. There is the time to print and there is the time to go to the post office and there is the time that was required to train yourself. At this exactly. point, it's paying me probably $200 minimum for having done this print. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Um, so he should be having a tax write-off <laughs> you know, of $200 <laughs> and not an income of $20, right? But the way the, the system works is you have an income of $20. And by the time you've paid your taxes, because he, if he does well, you know, I don't know, you know, he should be paying for the right. tax. This person has actually... And, unless, they're, uh, unless they're building a mailing list to sell... It doesn't work. I think that's a common strategy when they sell the uh, Windows software online for uh, on TV for $5, that, that that guy is basically building a mailing list to sell to others. And it makes more money on his mailing list. Right, right. And it might work because it's a different type of marketing where we're right. looking at huge numbers. I mean, uh, you know, uh, TV advertising is so expensive that whenever you see a commercial more than once, you know that the numbers are staggering. Yeah, exactly. Tens of thousands of sales, sometimes per minute, uh, definitely for the whole duration of the commercial, which is a few minutes. So but, uh, you know, Elon, we we uh, also visited um, previous discussions um if you have a feel for where the industry is going, where photography as an art form is going, where maybe you're teaching and workshops, uh, where they're going, if if any, are we, are we kind of stable here with regards to technology and approaches, and are we kind of going into a refinement phase and, and more of a personal style development phase, or what, what do you see happening? I, I think I think it's stable. I mean, you know, it's very expensive. I mean, it's a very expensive hobby. Obviously, you know, 
the prices of digital bikes, for example, are not going to drop. The resolution is going to increase, and the prices will stay where they are. Right. In yeah, it seems like dollars. each manufacturer is pretty content, although Canon might yeah. come away from that $7,000 point for their high end, I'm guessing. I, I think they're going to introduce... Uh, my guess with Canon, and I have no particular insider knowledge, so I'm free to say whatever I feel, is that we're going to introduce a new camera at PMA that will be sized larger sensor-wise than the 1DS Mark II, but slightly smaller than a digital medium format bank, and that it's going to be priced around $10,000, because what, what is the, the normal approach now for marketing, and this is a very new approach, it's only a few years old, is you don't drop the price, you increase the number of the size of the sensor or the number of pixels. Right. And then the previous model then gets downgraded price-wise to maybe one-half or one-third. Right. If you look at right. this one, what was a $30,000 digital back uh, last year, which was the P25, is now $12,000, but then the new P45 is $30,000. And we know that when the P65 or 85 or whatever number will come out, it will be $30,000, and then the P45 will be maybe $15,000. So that's how we price it. And, and so we, it's not going to change. Right? That's going to stay the same. What's going to change is we are going to have more and more options. I mean, right now, if you want to shoot raw, and if you don't shoot raw, you should. And if you don't know why, you really need to <laughs> look into it. Um, you, you really have a very small number of options, and they're all DSLRs, all medium format bikes. They, I mean, there's literally no point-and-shoot cameras right now that shoot raw. So the options are very, very small, uh, because these are more expensive and bigger cameras. On the other hand, we are going to see, and we're studying, a higher level of complexity when it comes to software. That is, the choices that we don't really have with cameras, we do have with software. Mm-hmm. We, we have now more software besides Photoshop. We have Lightroom, which is also an Adobe product. But we definitely have around 10 different RAW converters, uh, really confusing a lot of people. And then we have software like LightZone, which do contrast control very well, uh, different than Photoshop does it. And when this new software came out, I started thinking, well, you know, this is going to make things easier. But the, what I'm saying now is it's actually making things more complicated because a lot of people ask me, uh, which one should I use? I mean, should I use Photoshop and LightZone or just LightZone or should I use Lightroom? Now they are confused because they have so many options. So it's, it's the, the, the field is becoming more complicated in a way. It's also taking longer to familiarize yourself with all the options because there's more options. Okay. So you have to study what this and that can do as opposed to just buying Photoshop and learning yeah. Photoshop. But like I told you, I I wasn't real eager to learn two more pieces of software, but right. I have to share that experience that you need to know what these do. And when you go out in the field, you need to know what they do, either from a totally new standpoint rela- related to Photoshop or a more efficient way to achieve it. But I think they're all still mostly a global type correction, although the contrasting, you know, you're splitting out in 10 zones. Uh, But it's still kind of a global approach. You know, Photoshop still has that local, I can put the effect where I want it. Right. But we are getting to the point where we were with darkroom photography at its apex, which probably was in the 70s, around 70, 75, where you know you had all these enlarging lenses, all these papers with all these grades, with all these developers, and with this with a cold light head or mm-hmm. uh, you know 
this and that. Right. And it would take you several years to literally learn all the options and figure out what worked for you and what you liked and did not like. Uh, with digital, we thought, well, that part is over because I just buy Photoshop and then I just learn Photoshop. And what we are starting to see now is that the complexity is, is getting larger and we are we are getting more or less to where we were with, with Darkroom in, in the 70s, which is good and bad. I mean, the good thing is we have more options, and that's good. We, we can do more things. We don't have to all do the same thing. The bad thing is we have to spend more time learning. Right. Um, you know, so you know, going back to the second part of your question regarding the teaching, I, I think that I, I see teaching literally expanding tremendously because – so far, the demand has been from people that are s switching from film to digital. I don't know anything about digital. But now we are starting to see a shift. We are starting to see people that say, well, I've been using digital for so many years, but now all of this is happening, and what should I do? That is, you know, uh, should I take my investment and use it, or should I reinvest, or what should I, or should I change my practice? It, it's very interesting. It's a mm -hmm. sort of change, you know, and it's the beginning of the change. Now, the other thing that I think has been there from the beginning but is taking more and more importance is the realization that what is really important to learn is the artistic side of photography besides the technical side. Because if you go on the Internet and you have a technical question, you probably can find an answer if you search long enough. But when it comes to art, there are no answers because art is not really something that you can teach through question and sessions. You have to teach it through practice. Okay. The only way we're going to learn to take a better photograph when it comes to composition or the, the way we're going to learn how to optimize a, a photograph better when it comes to ex expressing our feelings, our emotions, is through practice. There, there is no way to teach somebody how to express an emotion by telling them to do this key command and use this filter and this and that. It doesn't work. You know, it, it can't be taught from there. You have to teach people to basically go back and remember what they experienced uh, and then, you know, think how we can convey that, you know, through color and tone. So it's, at that point, you know, I, I see an enormous amount of, of, of changes there, you know, where it, when you look at photography classes, and I taught photography at the university, and I had all the books on photography. I mean, I, I would get three copies, you know, instructor copies, and I had right. an enormous amount of, of books. And I would recommend the books to the library, the university library. I had never, ever had a book that talked about these kind of things. Okay, never. Um, the, the closest they got was into commentaries of photographs, you know, criticism, you know, theory, theory criticism, you know, literary criticism of photographs. They, they never went into the photographer's frame of mind, you know, and, and how we express our emotions and, you know, this and that. Or into meta metaphors, you know, which is one way to express emotions, you know, just using... Well, which is oftentimes totally connected in the painting world. Right, right. Yeah, I go... I mean, my way of, of, of studying this, you know, in, in order to teach it, is actually to go back to some of the things that I learned when I was painting and, and go back to some of the texts that I read, because we are there. I mean, we are, we are going right back to that. Um, with the added complexity that we still have to understand this very complex technology, we still have to be able to make a beautiful print that matches our monitor. And on top of that, we have to create this image, this digital file, that matches our emotions, right? So we have an incredibly complex problem. How do I express my emotions into a print? And then how do I make this print as good as possible from a technical standpoint? 
and, and I think that varies a lifetime of teaching. You know. And we have to have the confidence to follow our intuitions out in the field. Exactly. And, and in the computer also. I mean, eventually, right. you want to reach a stage, uh, you know, Ansel Adams described it in his book, uh, the example, The Making of 40 Imagers, where for him the goal was to master the technique so well that it became second nature, and he could focus on the artistic without being, you know, impeded or slowed down by all the technical questions. That is, if you want to, ex to take a beautiful photograph of, uh, you know, one of the rock formations in... Uh, Yosemite, and, and you're really inspired, and you have the composition, and then all of a sudden you realize that you don't have a clue how to expose the film, right. well, that's going to stop you, right? Because yeah, his his examples book yeah. with the moonrise over Hernandez, mm -hmm. it, it just it exactly reinforces that point yeah. of how fluid he was in that moment. Yeah, yeah, and and the same in Photoshop. I mean, if, I, if I'm thinking, well, this red doesn't work, it's too red, and I need more brown, and then I go into my control, and I'm like, well, which one do I use to change the color? And then I find one, but I realize that I really don't know how to make red-brown. Well, that sure is going to stop my inspiration. Right. You know, to the point where that image might have to be scrapped, because I can't get the color right. So then I have to go back to learning, right? So, so we, are, we, are, we, are, we are looking at a very serious problem, you know, and, and that's when, you know, I'm writing currently a series of three essays on, on uh, inspiration. And I thought, at first, I'm going to just write an essay called, you know, Creativity and Inspiration or something like that. But as I, real, as I thought about this and thought about some of the issues I just talked about, I realized that there really is no such thing as creativity and inspiration. What there is are separate fields, uh, one of them being inspiration, another one being creativity, and the third one being vision. And, and we can be organized in any given way. Uh, vision would be the overriding term that it, it includes all of our ideas, our general idea for what we want to do. Uh, creativity being that part where we try different things, and then inspiration being where we find the ideas, we find uh, the spark that starts everything. And, and the way I, I explain the differences between the three is by looking back uh, at, at children. You know, For example, if you have a child working with crayons and pens uh, and, a, and a piece of paper, they might be trying all sorts of things and be very, very creative. I mean, you can be marveled at how, what, it, what it is that they are thinking of. Do they have a vision? No, they don't. <laughs> they don't have a big overriding idea, uh, you know, the way I do. I mean, my, my overriding idea is very simple, to represent the beauty of nature. But it's a big overriding idea. It might be simple, but it's very specific. Children don't have that. Are they inspired? Probably not. They are just having fun. They, they did not see a rose and think, my God, I've got to represent the beauty of this rose. Otherwise, it's going to be lost. There is no such thing. They are just having fun. You know, on the other hand, you can have a vision you know, of representing the beauty of nature without being very creative and without having any inspiration. You know, on the other hand, you can be inspired without any creativity and without a vision. So uh -huh. there are really all these parts that are sort of floating around, you know, like three balls, and, and in order to really make coherent work, you, you have to have these three walls on, in the air at the same time. And for most people, it's one or the other, and sometimes none of them. And, you know, there's nothing out there that explains how this works. Nothing. I mean, I, uh, I just did a search uh, not long ago on, on the web for composition, and I, I, I found more links about composition in writing <laughs> than I found links on composition mm -hmm. in, in art, actually. Um, and well, these, these, are, these are corporate concepts. 
you know, or, or motivational concepts. You mentioned Dale Carnegie, but I, I'm guessing there's probably not even were these even taught in painting and the Beaux Arts. Are these even areas addressed? Because I think if I go back to France, it would have appeared to be quite invasive of people's privacy to ask them what inspires you or right. how do you get creative or what is your vision. But we've changed. The world has changed. Where now these kind of questions are totally acceptable. They are totally acceptable because an entire field of, of knowledge, an entire, an entire body of knowledge has, has emerged called you know, different words. Um, the one that I like the most is resurfacing, you know, but uh, what they are is courses, seminars, usually extremely high price, that allow people to go back in their mind to what was the root, their original goals, you know, when they were young and uh, the world was a place of hope, right? <laughs> right. And and then they got, you know, <laughs> what happened to them. Well, right. So, right. You know, we all had an aunt. You know, I had an aunt who bought me the Kodak fundamentals book and because exactly. exactly. i had expressed to her an interest in photography but what happened well life comes in and right but now that we're able to to say exactly what you said you know do these sort of mini confessions um we 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 no longer sense invasion of privacy when somebody says well, what is your inspiration right that 20 years ago or 30 years ago that, that was not the case and then the other thing is simply the, the change in, in our culture about how much invasion of privacy really takes place. And I mean, you know, we type our address on the Internet, and who knows who's got that address. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we have lost a, a lot of what we consider to be a concept of privacy a few years ago. So now we can ask these questions, but we, we still operate according to the previous paradigm, which is one you don't ask these questions. But it's over. We can ask these questions. Most people are actually happy to talk about that. Because it's a lot better than to talk about somebody stealing your credit card. You know, I mean, if you want to go into matters of privacy. So, you know, a lot of what I'm doing is I'm, I'm actually breaking new ground. I mean, it's literally, um, I have no model at this point on what I'm doing because, you know, it just doesn't exist. No, I'm not aware of it. And that's why I'm sought out the interview with you. <laughs> that's kind of why yeah, I stick yeah. with you. It's exciting. And, and, I mean, Right, I think it gives. I think you mentioned uh, in one of our other discussions just how important it is for people to have a, an awareness of who you are before they start to participate in your workshops and in your writings, and so they they kind of know what they're getting. And I think the, this discussion we're having will go a long way into introducing people to uh, what it is you and Natalie are trying to do and how you go about it. It's very important for us that people become themselves, whatever, whoever that is, and not become, you know, mini-me's, so to speak, you know, or, or copies of me. I've had too many teachers in France that uh, would have entire classrooms of students that would all paint the same way as the teacher, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's very weird because, you know, the teacher is like, well, you're close. And I'm like, to what? To you? <laughs> I mean, it's absurd. It's like, shouldn't I get closer to me? And, of course, you have no idea who I am because you're only concerned with you, you know. And I, I, I don't want to do that. I mean, I want people that do their own thing, you know. If you, students will always be influenced by the teacher. There's no need for the teacher to stress that point, you know. Um, so we, we want people to be them because eventually you save so many, so many years of work. 
You know, because if you copy somebody else's work and you try to, to duplicate somebody's style or you try to be that person, eventually you, ru you run into an impossibility. No matter how much you want to be that person, you're not. You know, they are them, you are you, right? That's all. That's the only option. And then the other thing that happens is if you succeed, you know, which can be seen as a blessing and a curse, well, you now have to deal with the fact that people are going to come to you and say, well, your work is as good, is almost as good as, right? <laughs> you know, that's the problem. And of course, if you don't succeed, then you know you're nothing, right? But then eventually, the minute you start to realize all of that, and you say, "Well, I really have to live up my own style," then you've also lost 10 to 20 years, right? So, so you want to learn from other people how they do what they do, but you want to also work on your own work, you know, as soon as possible. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's sort of the secret, because otherwise, you know, it saves you, in my estimate, I think it saves you 10 to 20 years. Um, I spent a road that long trying to duplicate other people's work until I realized that they were them and I was me, and that's why it wasn't going to happen. Right, right. And it, I think, you know, those those learning curves we uh, have been shortened. I think digital helps compress it. Oh, yeah. and, and, and hopefully uh, for many of us who start later in life, gives us an opportunity to begin that personal style development much faster than what we would have. But we have to be very straightforward about what has been shortened. And, you know, there's an enormous amount of technical things that have been shortened, but then there is a lot of things that have been shortened. No more than painting is shortened. For example, you know, one of the main advantages of digital, not the only one, but one of the main, is this issue of color balance. Now photographs are easy to color balance. Well, if you look at paint, paint was always color balanced, <laughs> you know, from from day one, right? You know, there is no such thing as of color paint, right? Uh, of of balance. So painters never had to deal with some of the issues that took photographers maybe a hundred years to solve, right? So at some at some point, people, you know, there is a lot of people out there that that are um, basically saying that a lot of problems have been resolved without realizing that. For some medium, they were never the problem, right? And so, therefore, we are no better than that. We still, that doesn't mean that our job is done. That means we can start working on the creative part sooner. Right. We don't have right. to solve this technical problem. The, the, the problem of painters is not to find the right paint. You know, the problem of painters is, is, is to express themselves, to find, you know, the right style and, and learn, learn how to lay the pen down. You know, so, so photographers... You know, one of the things that I do is I'm, I'm trying to point out what photographers need to do in order to not so much reveal or enjoy the newfound ease with which we can do photography, but instead go beyond anything that we have done in previously in color photography. Right. You know, um, and and that's not necessarily a message easy to share because a lot of people don't want to be told that, you know, there is this door now that we can open and, and all these things that we can do that we've never thought of before. But on the other hand, that's the only door that can be opened that's going to lead to new styles. Otherwise, we're just going to duplicate the work of other people. Well, I think it's exciting what's, what's going to happen and what is happening. And it's obviously been a revolution. And uh, I think you're going to see a lot of people drive this deeper in terms of their personal style and creative work and experimenting with 
with topics and subject matter that maybe uh, previously weren't thought of because of the freedom to experiment that digital does afford you. Yeah, I think so. I mean, obviously, um, the minute people don't have all the technical hurdles that we had, they are, you know, it's human nature that we're going to focus our efforts on something else. We're not just going to, uh, you know, sit back and, and, and just have it the way it is, right? Uh, you know, I mean, you, you look at cars, for example. You know, cars have become so much more comfortable now that we could say, well, people, you know, are going to do the same kind of trips as they did in the 60s, for example, but they are, they are going to enjoy it more. No, the, the byproduct has been that people do longer stretches when they drive. So instead of driving 100 miles and stopping, they now drive 500 miles. And so, mm -hmm. or, or, you know, I'm not sure what the numbers are, but you know, the death of the small gas station in the middle of nowhere is, is testimony to that. People just go from one city to another because the cars are more comfortable. Uh, so they drive longer stretches. So, there's, so there's, there's always a drive in our society to keep working as hard, but to just shift the emphasis of the work. Right, right. right. You know, if that makes any sense. Um, so we are, we, instead of working very hard at color balancing our photographs, we are going to work very hard at expressing our emotions, maybe. You know, I'm not sure. You know, I really don't know. But there's no doubt that we are going to work very hard. Well, Juan, it's uh, always great to speak with you and to see kind of where you've come from on teaching and see where you're going, more importantly. And I know that others are, are with me on, on that and looking forward to it. And just really appreciate your your teachings and Natalie's teachings and uh, enjoy your workshops. And I just can't encourage others who maybe haven't participated to, to join in on one of your workshops or definitely participate in your writings online. That costs nothing. And that's Luminous Landscape or on your site or at uh, least investigate the CDs and DVDs you have because I know it will improve their photography and uh, probably help get them a little deeper involved into their, their art form as well. I uh, don't know if you have any closing comments, but uh, we'll let you. My, my comment is always the same. Find out if you if you want to study photography or or not, and, and if your decision is to go and study photography to get started right away. Every day that you put it off is another day that you could have studied, you know. So, it's my recommendation for anything in life, actually. You know, uh, success doesn't happen because we're lucky. It happens because we work hard and we are excited and passionate. And it's, it's, it happens because we get started. There is no good place to start. Um, you know, I, I uh, learned that very, very early in life. You, you start where it feels comfortable and uh, just go with that. And, you know, if it's reading an essay, if it's joining a forum, if it's taking a workshop, whatever it is, you know, that's where you start. And as as you move down the line from there, you're going to be more excited about certain aspects of photography, since that's what we're talking about. And you're going to be more curious about certain aspects. And, and then you're now going to have a focus. You're going to say, well, I'm very interested in running this subject, so I'm going to go do that, you know. But in the beginning, it's not always clear, you know, so you just have to dive in, basically. And dive in, and, and I think, again, what I just really appreciate is the positive reinforcement you and Natalie bring, and it's so encouraging. There's enough going against you here to uh, to not have to select out an instructional path that will do nothing but 
add more obstacles or potentially negative feedback or more frustration. So uh, I, I think your positive incremental encouragement uh, helps bring a lot of people to realize much finer pieces of art that they're producing. And I think it's just yeah. I, I really endorse that approach, and I really appreciate it. And I know it's helped me tremendously. I, and I appreciate the comment. I, the, the way I look at it very often when I uh, talk to students or customers is we are the best part of their day, <laughs> you know, and we want it that way. I mean, you know, you, do, you look at the news and it's horrible. You go get your mail and you have all these bills. <laughs> you know, hardly anything comes into the mail now except bills. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, you, you call us or you email us and hopefully we are there to deliver good news, you know. We are not there definitely to deliver bad news, and I don't see how we could anyway because, you know, what we offer is something that's aimed at being enjoyable. So that's how I feel very often, you know, that um, we are really helping a lot of people, and from the feedback that we receive, I think, uh, you know, we can tell that that's the case. Yeah, and for those who don't know, this was – we originally talked about doing this at the Fine Arts Summit, and not to my surprise – the Fine Arts Summit really taxed uh, Alon's time. He was intimately involved with presentations and logistics and one-on-one -on -one with people and imaging and workshops. And so he graciously offered to do this uh, on the phone on a web conference a few uh, days later, and I am deeply indebted. I really appreciate it. I just wanted to say a final thank you for that. You're welcome. And we probably should mention the website, um, beautiful-landscape.com. Um, or just type my name, Alan Brio, A-L-A-I-N-B-R-I-O-T.com, and you'll get there either way. Um, or, you know, you probably will have a link wherever this uh, recording is posted, but in case the link is not there, I thought I should really mention it. But you never know with cyberspace where things end up. That's exactly right, definitely. And uh, we'll, I know we're going to distribute this possibly through a couple of channels, so we're not sure. Uh, the full distribution at this point, but yeah, that never hurts, and uh, we I really appreciate it. My, I, I do searches for my name once in a while out of curiosity, and <laughs> I always found links of people that have sometimes used my writing and uh, posted it on their site, and it's not really an infringement of copyright because they obviously say it's my work, but they've never told me, <laughs> you know, and I find them in Brazil anyway, you know. And, right. Uh, Google's picking so I, it up. <laughs> yeah, or maybe they. they they forget, or maybe they try to contact me and I can't read the email. But, right, um, right. You know, cyberspace is interesting, so I, I thought I should include it. But it was a pleasure doing this with you, and uh, um, I, I really look forward to uh, more of this. Uh, you know, I know people love podcasts, and uh, I think it's a very nice way of delivering, you know, content on the Internet. Thanks, Alon. I appreciate it.